Welcome to Voices of Clarity. Together we will learn about kids and mental health from experts within the field. Let's get started. Today's topic that we are going to discuss is understanding self-harm and the difference with societal ideation or attempts. Now, this is a very important topic. Actually, last weekend's uh, Wall Street Journal had an extensive article about uh, teenage mental health, and it read, I quote, in 2015, three times as many 10 to 14-year-old girls were admitted to the emergency room for self-harm as in 2010. And according to the CDC, the suicide rate for girls 15 to 19 doubled between 2007 and 2015, although it's still far higher for boys. So this is a very uh, issue, a big issue, of course. And today with us, uh, we are going to uh, have a conversation uh, with our speaker today, Carol Carver, who is the CEO and Vice President of Patient Services at Clarity Child Guidance Center. Now, for those who are not familiar with our organization, Clarity Child Guidance Center is a nonprofit treatment center solely dedicated to helping children 3 to 17 with their mental health. Uh, we're located in the San Antonio Medical Center and provide inpatient and outpatient services to several thousand of children every year. And we can read more, of course, about the center at claritycgc.org. Now, Carol began her work at Clarity as a, as a RN staff nurse in 1982. She recently obtained a master's in nursing at Walden University, and she has held several uh, different positions over the past 30 years, including nursing supervisor, director of nursing, acute care program director, and quality assurance coordinator. Currently, yes, Carol serves as a senior vice president and COO. And she participates in uh, community presentations on mental health issues and is a member of the American Nurses Association. Carol, welcome. Hi, my pleasure. So, you know, I started with big numbers, uh, but let's let's go back to maybe some more specific thing. Can you give us a definition of what self-injury is or self-harm? Um, what what the title or what we currently call this is non suicidal self-injurious behavior. In the past, it was called self-mutilation. Um, and um, so now a common term for this is non-suicidal. And typically what this means is um, injury, self-injury, that is usually superficial, not life-threatening. And the intent of the injury is to manage emotional distress. And mm. this can um, result in um, distracting from uh, overwhelming emotion. It can also be a uh, result in physical pain that allows the person to feel something when they're feeling numb or mm. there's a lack of feeling. Um, it's a form of control, taking back control when the, the uh, adolescent feels out of control or the child feels out of control. And it can also be a form of self-punishment. Okay, so there's really an, an, interestingly uh, an array of reason almost or, or, or motivation for someone to engage and continue in that. I heard uh, you know, that that is a release of some adrenaline when you, you have this pain and it, it kind of soothes the pain, right? It's a, it's a, uh, an, a way. Yeah, to... I, but I think it's important to remember at the core, it's to manage emotional distress. Mm. So that is the underlying issue exactly. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the common forms of self-injury? Yes, um, common forms are cutting, superficial cutting, 
hair pulling. Um, this can be something as subtle as twisting and twisting your hair until it comes out. Um, yeah. It can be uh, scraping, rubbing until you get an excoriation or an abrasion, um, burning, hitting oneself, kicking at skin, and especially if an area is trying to heal, um, picking and picking to prevent healing. Hmm. So those are forms of, of self-injury. And what is the extent that it can take? I mean, you're talking about, we, we, we see sometimes cutting, you know, I mean, what, what have you seen or what can you tell about the extent of that 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 can take? Well, I have seen um, some patients with extensive cuts all over the body, particularly in areas that are not readily visible when clothing is worn. Um, I and, and you will see them in various stages of healing. There will also be multiple scarring, and um, especially if the problem is chronic. So, so cutting uh, on the body, you can see the cuts. Are there other 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 uh, ways that you know are very easy to dissimulate, really? Because that's a big thing, right? The cutter wants to hide. Right, and also there, uh, you can also see like scabs or wounds um, that that there's sort of a delayed healing, and because the the child keeps picking at it and picking at it, and so like a failure for something to heal that would normally heal um, over a few days uh, mm -hmm. can so sometimes take days and days to heal. Um, ball spots, sometimes uh, girls will wear their hair a certain way to cover up the areas that uh, of hair loss. Mm. And does that happen like, you know, if, if you look at the timeline, does, is it something that happens very fast and or, or like, you know, if someone starts cutting, she's going to cut extensively very quickly or is it very progressive and, and does it stop? How, how does that, you know, what's the... I think it varies. I think it does vary. There are some instances where a child may try it and they don't get the result that they were hoping for, so they don't self-injure any longer. There are some uh, children or adolescents who have self-injured for years, mm -hmm. and this is a very, very solidified coping skill. This is like... Um, for example, let's say you use exercise to cope. Well, that is something that is very developed in you as a coping skill. So that's something that you will use automatically when you right. start feeling your stress level go up. Well, it's the same thing with self-injurious behavior. When a child's stress level goes up, then their cutting or their self-injurious behavior will increase because they're trying to manage the increased stress. Mm, and there are times when this this self-injurious behavior goes on for years. I had a patient one time whose parent was very frustrated with the child's self-injurious behavior. And I explained to the parent that this was a way that that her child coped with her stress. And I asked the child, the teenager, I said, was there any time during the last five years where this behavior went away or was very, very lessened and decreased. And she said, yes, when I played volleyball. When mm -hmm. I was on the volleyball team and I was playing volleyball, I did not 
uh, I rarely self-injured. And that was because she was feeling better overall with this extracurricular activity. So it's important to remember that if you can replace the self-injurious behavior with something uh, that is pro, uh, you know, that facilitates um, uh, coping and um, it's pro-social. It's something that is healthy, that promotes health. That's what I'm trying to remember the word pro health promoting, that you will see a decrease in some of the other non-healthy ways of coping. That's really good. And I want to come back to that because that, you know, how do we how do we deal with it and how do we help those those young uh, people or teenagers? Uh, now let's let's talk a little bit about the, the question of suicide, right? So that how would you describe the difference between self-injury and suicide ideation and attempt in terms of you know intent or action? Well, the main difference is the intent. When, when a child self-injures or a teenager self-injures, their intent is to manage distress. When a person um, makes a suicidal gesture, their intention is, is to harm themselves or kill themselves. And it's sort of like that escape. I, I want to just end it. I want to remove the pain. I want to stop completely the hurting or the, the, the feeling, the overwhelming distress that I'm feeling. So while self-injurious behavior is more managing the feeling, suicidal, uh, a suicide attempt is to discontinue the feeling, to stop the feeling. Now, it's very important to remember that when somebody is self-injuring, they are in distress. Right. Just like somebody that is um, withdrawing excessively, not leaving the house, those that may not be harming themselves overtly, but it's still a red flag that someone is suffering and they need help. And that can result in a suicidal gesture or attempt. So, you know, you can't breathe a sigh of relief that someone is self-injuring to manage stress because that stress can become overwhelming and it can lead to a suicide attempt or gesture. So it's a, it's a, at the same time, it's a little bit reassuring to say like, okay, if my child is, is cutting, doesn't mean that they're, they're suicidal, right? I mean, that, right. that still is kind of a relief for parents, right? To know, okay, so there is a, a problem, but if you, if you don't recognize the problem or don't, address it and it could become more serious, right? That, that's basically right. the... You can say that it's not like threatening at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a very important distinction. Now, you said there is a, and that's maybe, that was my next question, that that's the relationship, there is a relationship between the two in the sense of that there's a sense of, there's a distress and that needs to be... That's correct, that's correct. That the child, we have to keep remembering that it's an it's an attempt to manage stress and that that stress can become overwhelming and that the child needs to deal with that stress in a way that can can be a a a pro a health promoting um management strategy 
In other words, self-injurious behavior is maladaptive. And so you want to be able to um, work with a child in a way that becomes more ad adaptive. Yeah. There are other underlying issues that you know, could lead to suicide too that like you know, whether, you know, bipolar illness or, or, or serious depression, I think. So maybe the, the, the question is, is, do you, you know, does this cutting actually reflect some of those, uh, you know, diagnosis or is this, is this separate? Is it a, a whole different ball game or. Yeah, that's correct. Um, Gerard, it, we really don't know it. All we know is that the child is suffering. And that they need some type of um, intervention to determine what is at the what is the root of the distress, and uh, how how then can that be managed? It could be something that is not as serious as a psychiatric diagnosis, not as serious as something that would qualify for a diagnosis, but it could be. Um, it could be a very high achieving person, someone that presents very well to the world, but has this secret and has this maladaptive way of functioning that it just needs to be addressed. Yeah, but I think that other, But in other areas, the child is functioning very normally. And yeah, in some yeah. cases, they're overachieving. Right, right. No, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing that up because I think there's. You know, and and maybe you can comment on the growth of you know what do we see more and more, but there's that that sense of, of pressure and how kids pressure themselves, and so they have to find a way to to cope, right? That's right. There is, I think, children are are their world is much bigger now with the internet and with uh, social media, and that is going to increase the pressure. It's going to increase the pressure. There's there's very little time for relief from that. And um, I also think that obviously the COVID hasn't helped that because children are more isolated and adolescents have been more isolated. So yep. that, that there's no surprise that this may be on the rise. Yeah, yeah that makes, I mean, that makes me think the article I was referring to was actually an interview of Dr. Jean Twenzy. Uh, who came to our clarity con actually, I think it was the one in, 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 uh, November last year. Anyway, we have a video of her, uh, our representation, uh, and she does talk a lot about social media, isolation, uh, lack of actual social relationship or difficulties of, of having real connections. Uh, and so that, that is, that is a definitely a factor. That, that parents need to be aware of. Now, other drivers, drivers of self-injury that, that we know of? I think, you know, they're all the triggers that occur for other behaviors. You know, when, when children start acting out or teenagers start acting out. Um, particularly in adolescence, it's a time of change. Um, there's a lot of body image issues. There's uh, the, the question of, do I fit in? There's also the question of identity. Who am I? Um, what am I about? And so all of these normal developmental stages and developmental issues um, can cause stress. I mean, as we all know, change causes stress. Sometimes it's good stress. 
sometimes it's overwhelming stress. Right. But but adolescence is a, a very, very can be very overwhelming in uh, due to the, the changes that occur in the child and in the adolescent. That's very good. And and we're about to see some more changes, right? As as they come back to school in person. Now, and I want to remind our audience, if you can put any question at any time in the in the chat box, I'll be happy to, to bring them up to, to Carol. Tell us a little bit about how we can detect how can parents or, or teachers of detect these behaviors and or be on the watch for it anyway. Something to remember, something very fundamental to remember is that the child or adolescent who is displaying this behavior is ashamed and embarrassed. So it's very, very important to approach the child or adolescent non-judgmentally. Mm -hmm. It's very important to remember. And, and unfortunately, when we discover this behavior or this symptom, it can be very shocking for us. Right. It can be extremely disturbing um, you take this beautiful child or adolescent and you see these cuts and, and it's just a major um, overwhelming uh, reaction sometimes. You just want to rescue them. Right. You, know, you want to patch them up, uh, focus on the injury. And really what we need to do is not pay attention so much to the injury and pay attention to what's causing the injury or what's causing the behavior. I used to train the staff on this symptom when they had to deal with patients that were displaying the symptom. And I would tell them, if you see a child crying, you would never say, oh my goodness, your face is wet. You would not focus on the, the, the tears, you would focus on the distress that is causing the crying. So you hmm. have to look at self-injurious behavior the same way. You don't want to. You don't want to say, "Why are you cutting? Why are you hurting yourself? Why are you doing something that is so not helpful? How? Why are you doing something that is going to hurt you? Because a lot of times they can't answer that question. Hmm. What What you want to focus on is, I can see that you're upset. You know, that's a really good way. That's a good empathy statement. I get it. I understand that you're upset. I understand that you may be experiencing something. And so that helps us frame our response is you shouldn't focus so much. It's not a good idea to focus so much on the actual injuries themselves and, and trying to fix that. What's more important is that you sit down with the child and you have a non-threatening discussion about what might be going on with them. You know, what, what kinds of things are they experiencing that are causing this distress? And essentially focusing on the distress rather than the injury. And, the, and one thing to remember is that the child is going to be very protective of this coping skill. Just like the smoker, just like the person that overeats, they... You can't just say you've got to stop. Right. I was going to say, yeah. You, you've got to stop. This is not going to work. You have to. Or punish the child, you know, or, 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 or try to, to get incentive, you know, like, or reward the child for stopping. It, it doesn't work. It's like an addiction, right? You can't you, you cannot manipulate them. Right. You can't expect them to just stop the behavior. 
It's much like we spoke about earlier with the child that was playing volleyball. When she was playing volleyball, she was doing the self-cutting less or the self-injurious behavior less. And that's because she was coping in an adaptive way. So it's very important to work with the child, get the child professional help so that they can learn to cope in more adaptive styles or more adaptive ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's a that's a, a, a huge thing. So like if, if you basically, then there are no more parents who actually want to protect, to stop it, then might trigger actually more more of that behavior, right? Well, because it, you want to you want to take control, right. and then that means the child loses control, right? But they'll also become more secretive about it, and they mm. will also just get better at hiding it, and it will cause a lot of distress because then it will just focus on will I be found out versus how can I get help with this symptom? How can I get help with my distress? So let's imagine a dialogue like I'm, I'm you know, the, 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 the young person who's who's cutting and you just found out. And so, so your your first response would be. Are my first response would be, you know what? I'm not even worried about that. Even though I am worried about it, you know, even though it is disturbing me, I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to say I am not as concerned about the, the cuts. I am not as concerned about you harming yourself or because I know that we have a much bigger issue here and that is that there's something going on, that there's something bothering you. And really that's what I'd like to know more about. Mm -hmm. I really wanna know more about what's bothering you. Uh, and I'm not really gonna focus right now on your cutting or okay. I'm not gonna focus on you're scratching or you're picking. I think that that's something that really should take a back seat to what's bothering you. That's what I'm concerned about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, what is the next step? So you, you know, the child has you know, explained something or maybe they can't really, it may not be that easy for a child to say, you know, like, a, I don't know why, you know, I, I just, it just makes me feel good. What, what is the next step for the parent? Or how can they? Well, I think it's really important to get professional help. Um, you know, you the parent can self-educate, find out more about the symptom, but it's also important that the child has somebody they can talk to because uh, as with many children, sometimes the family is what's triggering the problem. So, it could be that if you're a parent and you're trying to talk to the child about the, co her, the maladaptive coping behavior, you're part of the problem. It will be no surprise that the child really doesn't feel comfortable discussing it with you. So, or it may be a problem that they feel like will only be worse if they talk to you about it. It may have something to do with a relationship or it may have something to do with how the child feels about themselves and their own identity. And, and those times you really need to seek professional help. And, and, and maybe, can you, cause we do a lot of family system approach, right? So when we say, you know, the parent, you know, is part of the problem, can, can you explain that a little bit? It's so that, I mean, like parents want the best for their child, right? So it's like, I can, I don't want right. to feel defensive about that, but let's but kind of look at that. That's not necessarily, uh, it's just part of life, right? It's just part of. Well, 
and it's part of relationships right any anytime you are are close to a person that is experiencing distress emotional distress your relationship will not allow you to see things objectively because in a, you're in a relationship a lot of times parents get upset when we treat their children and their children respond to the staff very differently than they responded to the parent. And I have to explain to the parent is because we're not in a relationship with the child. The child doesn't have strong feelings about the staff. So that is something that's very important to remember. It's, it's really a compliment because the child does have strong feelings for their parent right. and that will sometimes um, cause them to need to get help from someone that is not in a relationship with them. Yeah. And having had teenagers myself, I mean, I, I know that there are changes, right? And the change and, and parents, we have to, to, to adapt to some to those, those changes. So it's, it's a learning curve. And so we encourage parents to actually you know, work together with the therapist too, not just the, the child. Right. Right? Yes, we would anytime we work with a child or a teenager, <clears throat> if you have to include the parent because the parent is so important. They're a very, very important member of the treatment team. And, and the, the, you know, what happens, to, I mean, like it's a, it can be a shock for parents when they find out uh, and, uh, and, and it takes a while to learn. So you talk about the relationship to, with the therapist. Are there other, other ways that parents can actually you know, take care of themselves and, and, and get support with that? Yes, I think there are support groups available for parents um, with, that are that are coping with something similar to what the, the parent is experiencing. I think it's really important for the parent to get help for themselves as well, especially if they're having a hard time dealing with this. And I have to say, this is something that's very difficult yeah. for a parent to deal with because our job as parents, I'm a parent, is to take care for our children and care for our adolescents. And if in this, you feel very powerless, you feel like um, you can't help. And that is not yeah. a good feeling for a parent. Yeah, it's very, it's very difficult. One thing that I noticed, in a, and maybe you, we see that, you know, you see that on your, on your end, is that it seems like girls tend to be more likely to do cutting. Is, it, is that something you notice and, and kind of is there a reason we, we can, we see that? Is that, a, a, you know, our boys, Finding all the coping skills differently, or what? I think that for girls, you know, we'd like to think that society is making progress in this area, but females are are encouraged to express their emotions and their emotional distress in a non-aggressive way. Mm. When a little girl hits, it gets a different reaction. From society than when a little boy hits. Right. Um, so boys tend to externalize their anger and girls tend to internalize their okay. and, and internalize their distress, not just anger, but uh, all different types of emotions. And I think that can lead to something like self self harm or self injury. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good point. Well, uh, Carol, we're getting to the to the closing of our of our time. Um, did you have any any closing comment? Any any other recommendation for parents? 
Well, one of my recommendations is if you do discover that this behavior in your child, my first recommendation is don't panic. Because it is just it is a coping skill. It's maladaptive, but the child is trying to manage. And that's a good sign because we all are managing. We're always managing at one point or another. So this means that your child is still working at this. And so it's important to give them credit for that and to help them find more uh, adaptive ways of coping. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Carol. We really appreciate your, your insights here and your help with this uh, important topic. Thanks for joining us. Please visit our website, claritycgc.org, for more children's mental health tips, tricks, and resources. See you next time.